0: It is all so beautiful. God's world is so wonderful. And the people God has created in His image have dignity and worth. Yet followers of Jesus, living in this beautiful world, find it more difficult than ever to live out their faith. The people they encounter express that Christians are irrelevant, extreme, and close-minded. The voice of Jesus and His followers is no longer welcome in the culture. As Christians, how should we respond? Some have lost hope. Maybe we should blend in and not cause any trouble. Let's just be chameleons and change along with the culture. Others believe our purpose is to regain control of the culture. Through politics and rallying together, we can get things back to the way it was, where we were more powerful and comfortable. Still, some say, let's go inside the church and just shut the doors. We'll lock the world out and hope we survive. But is there another way? A way that leads us to be fully engaged with the world, but live completely different than the world. A mindset that doesn't rely on power or politics to influence the culture. A strategy that equips and empowers believers to engage real people in the real world, risking ourselves to boldly display the gospel story in the kingdom of God. Some call this a creative minority. Others say it is a redemptive subversion. We say we are church.
1: The world. First Peter 1: Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those chosen, living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. The word of God. God. Amen. My favorite videos on the internet right now are these videos where people are colorblind and they are given a gift of glasses that helps them to see color. Have you seen these videos? You need to watch them. They're amazing there's two videos that I've seen, one's of a young boy and one's of an older man, and they've lived their whole lives evidently being colorblind. And for a gift, their family gives them these glasses that allow them to see color. And uh, they get it on video the very first time they put the glasses on. They open up the box, and they look at them, and both of the guys are sitting down in, in chairs, and they put the glasses on. And you almost can read their mind. I think it's the little boy, he doesn't even look up. He's just staring at the ground and the green of the grass that he's seen for the first time. And both the men and the boy in these separate videos are overwhelmed because they're seeing the world anew. They just are looking around like this and they both in each video start to cry. It's just overwhelming with awe and joy that they get to see the world as it really is for the first time. Amazing videos, amazing videos to watch these, this man and this boy see the beauty of the world and become overwhelmed with joy and awe. But I think sometimes the opposite is true for us as Christians. Sometimes we wear rose colored glasses that keep us from seeing the world as it really is. The song, La Vie en Rose, you know, seeing the world with with rose-colored glasses that kind of make it seem better than it really is. I don't know, maybe you're not a Christian, and and you would say, yeah, Christians tend to not be able to enter into the world as it really is. They wear these rose-colored glasses that when we take them off, we see the world as quite wild. You know, we wear these glasses and think, man, as I look around, it should be easy to follow Jesus in this world. And in reality, it's very difficult to be a follower of Christ. We wear the glasses and say, people should be friendly towards my faith in Jesus. But we take the glasses off and realize people are not friendly towards faith in Jesus. And as we see the world as it really is, it overwhelms us. The world is a scarier place than I thought for a follower of Jesus. Or we're overwhelmed with anger. I don't want it to be this way. I want it to be easier to follow Christ, or, or timidity. I just don't know what to do but shrink down. Removing those rose-colored glasses re- reveals a wild world that can be quite overwhelming. And what I find is Christians respond in a few different ways. The first way is that we respond as chameleons. Uh, a chameleon is uh, you know a lizard that kind of blends in. And I think as the culture changes and the values of the culture shift, some Christians feel this pressure just to shift their values to whatever the culture says and blend in. We don't want to cause any trouble. We just want to lay low. Still others feel this need to circle the wagons. Circle the wagons was a way to protect people in the case of attacks. You know, watch out for the children. We're going to close the doors of the church keep the world out and make sure we're safe and just hope we survive but when that happens the church doesn't engage the real world still some feel listen what we should do is try and regain power over the culture through politics or rallying together we should try and get back to this place where it's a little more comfortable for us where we have more power where people aren't so against our values but the reality is it's more complicated than ever to follow Jesus in this cultural moment. It's more complicated than ever. And that's why we need the book of 1 Peter. That's why we need the book of 1 Peter because Peter is writing to people who are under all sorts of pressure because it's hard to follow Jesus in their culture. And what Peter is gonna show them throughout this book is look, the pressure is on you, but it's not hopeless you still can have hope and purpose in Jesus Christ. And listen, you might be verbally attacked by people, but you can still reach out with the love of God to your enemies and show them the love of Jesus in practical ways, even when evil is done to you. And what Peter's going to show us today is that all begins with grounding our identity in our God. Grounding our identity in our God. Peter writes as one with authority. He starts his letter off by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Before before Peter was an apostle, he was a disciple. And he's actually very apt to write this letter because he was one who feared the pressure around him. You remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter himself denied Jesus three times. The pressure was on. There was a risk of suffering. And Peter says, no, I don't know him. I don't know him. And Peter, having been restored, has a unique perspective on what it means to suffer for Jesus because he failed at suffering for Jesus. But he's not just a disciple. He's an apostle. Someone who is an apostle is someone who has seen and spent time with the resurrected Christ. In Acts 1... The apostles are looking for a new apostle to replace Judas, and they say this, We need to choose one from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. From among these it is necessary that one become a witness with us to the resurrection. An apostle is someone who has seen and been with the resurrected Christ, and that is Peter. Chosen to be an apostle of Christ. And so he has an authority to write the true message of Jesus Christ to this church. But it's actually not a church. It's believers that are scattered all over. Peter is writing from Rome, which he'll call Babylon later in the letter. And he's writing a circular letter to people scattered all around Asia Minor. To people scattered all around Asia Minor, which is now modern day turkey and when he writes to them he calls them the chosen living as exiles dispersed abroad to those chosen living as exiles dispersed abroad in pontius galatia cappadocia asia and bithynia now they're dispersed people all over asia minor there's been a lot of debate whether this group of people is mostly jews or mostly gentiles if i had to fall On one of those sides, I would say I think they're mostly Gentiles because of the way that Peter writes to them throughout the book. He says that their past was futile and they lived like Gentiles. Uh, But either way, he is addressing them and they're not in a position of power. The pressures of the culture are closing in on them. It's not physical persecution. It's more verbal and a loss of social status. Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? as a Christian living today it's not physical persecution it's more verbal and a loss of social status for following Jesus and he calls them exiles you're outsiders you're misunderstood you're going to receive verbal hostility and you can imagine what they're asking the questions that they're asking as the pressure caves in on them they're saying where is God is there any hope Do we have any purpose here? We are being rejected. Do we belong anywhere? But Peter tells them, no, you're exiles, but you're chosen. Some translations of the Bible will say elect exiles, chosen exiles. And when Peter uses that language, he's reminding them that there's a much bigger story than what they're experiencing right there. He's putting them within the whole story of the people of God and reminding them that God's people have always been chosen but wanderers. Elected but on the outside. Starting with Abraham in Genesis 18. The Lord said, Should I hide what I am about to do from Abraham? Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him for I have chosen him. So he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. God selects Abraham and his family to be a blessing to the nations. But from that point on, you know that Abraham was a wanderer. The people of God wandered in the desert for 40 years. The people of God were taken into exile in Babylon, but yet they're chosen. So there's hope and there's purpose And there is belonging for the people of God, though they are outsiders. And Peter wants to remind them of this and help them root their identity in their God. Peter writes that they're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. This is just the greeting of the letter. It's just the very first two verses. But we're going to camp out here today because there's so much in even these first two verses. When Peter writes that they're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, what we tend to think is that in that moment when he uses foreknowledge, God has knowledge about the future in the past. He has facts about the future and then makes the decision in the past. But that's not what the word foreknowledge means. The word foreknowledge means that you make a plan in the past that then comes to expression in the future it's not that god is reacting to something in the future it's that he is the actor and he sets the plan into motion look how peter uses this same word in later in chapter one he says for you were ransomed from feudal ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold but with the precious blood of christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. God had a plan to send Christ from eternity past that came to expression in the future. It's not that God waited into the future and saw, oh, Jesus will come at this time, and therefore I'll make plans for that. No, God made the plan and set it into motion. It was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And look how Luke uses the word in Acts chapter 2. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God made plans to send Jesus that he might die on the cross. God wasn't reacting to something he saw in the future. He was the one making the plan. It was foreknown. Foreknowledge means that God is intentional rather than reactive. That he is purposeful rather than responsive. He is activating rather than activated. And for us today, it means that these people were chosen according to God's plan way before they ever cared about God. And if you know Christ, you were chosen by God way before you ever cared. Cared about him. In eternity past, God set his affection on you. God purposed to love you way before you ever loved him. God planned to draw you to himself. Why does that matter in this moment for these people? Because they are experiencing rejection from society because of their faith in Jesus. And Peter is saying, you might be rejected by society, but you have the eternal affection of God on you. You might be receiving pushback in this time because of your faith, but God has purposed before time to bring you into his family. Your life's not going according to plan because of the pressures you're feeling. Well, you've always been part of the Father's plan. He's giving them perspective that they're still within the purposes of God. As Edmund Clowney says, Christ and his people were the objects of God's loving concern from all eternity. They are chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father. But they're also chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The sanctifying work of the spirit means that the spirit of god is setting people apart he's calling people out of the nations to set them apart for god's purposes he's making them into a new people around jesus and that's just what he did with us the spirit worked in us he brought new birth in us which we'll look at next week and he drew us to christ and he set us apart together to be part of the people of god for god's purposes and what peter wants them to see is listen you might be cast out by the culture but you are set apart by the spirit you might be suffering in this world but a comforter from the another world lives in you you are anointed by the spirit of god to reflect god in this world and as he lives in you you will be empowered to show the love of god to society even when society rejects you god has not abandoned you because you're suffering god lives in you You have been chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. But not only that, you've been chosen to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. I can imagine, if you're like me, that when you go through hard things or maybe someone puts a little pressure on you because you're a Christian, my first thought is, I've done something wrong and God's mad at me. You ever go there? I'm doing something wrong. I don't understand why it's so hard to follow God. I don't understand why it's so hard to be a Christian and follow Jesus. I must have done something wrong. And yet in the middle of the pressure that they're experiencing, Peter affirms them, no, you've been obedient to Christ. And that's the very reason that your life is hard. You've been obedient to the gospel. You have repented and believed. You are following Christ. And that's why the pressure is on It's not because you've been disobedient. It's because you've been obedient to Christ. Life is going to be harder because you are following Jesus. You're not suffering for something you did wrong. You're suffering because you have decided to follow Jesus. To be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Peter will later write in chapter 2, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your fathers not with perishable things like silver or gold but with the precious blood of christ like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb every one of us needs cleansing we have broken god's law like our first parents we have rebelled against god and we sit in judgment from god for rebelling Against him, but if your faith is in Jesus, you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We have been we have broken God's law, but our record has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Though God is righteous and we are unrighteous, our record has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Though God's justice demands penalty, we are not penalized because. Of the blood of Jesus. Though in this life we are separated from the physical presence of God, if we know Jesus, we will be restored in the life to come to the presence of God because of the blood of Jesus. Amen. Our works don't restore us to God. What restores us to God is the blood of Jesus. Christ was a substitute for you, he was put on the cross, and his blood was shed he died to pay your debt and was raised from the dead to new life and his blood cleanses you of your sin the blood of Jesus Peter is rooting these people in their identity and what God has done for them and that they are now cleansed they're not suffering because of something wrong they did but because Jesus has cleansed them and they're now being obedient To Christ, do you have that mindset? Do you realize that as being a Christian, you will encounter hardships in this world? A couple months ago, my wife and kids and I were walking through our neighborhood, and we lived just across Pembroke Road. And we saw a friend from Higher Vision—you know, our church down the street—that we're friends with, and she was crying. And I stopped there and said, "I know you from Higher Vision." She said, "Yeah." She said, "Pastor, I'm just so sad. I took a chance and I stepped out and shared my faith, and I just got squashed at her job." I thought, "Oh man, this is hard, but it's normal. It's hard, but it's normal. When we are obedient to Christ, and when we ex- when we receive by faith the sprinkling of His blood that cleanses of of our sin, it is normal." to find pressure and rejection from the culture. But that's okay. Because what Peter is also saying here is not just that you're cleansed, but that you belong. That you belong to God. When he uses the word sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, he's going to an allusion to the Old Testament, to Exodus 34. The people of God had been saved out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and had been brought to the mountain of Sinai. And God's presence was there and the mountain shook. And the people of God covenanted. They promised to be be God's people. But God promised to be their God. And to seal the deal, a sacrifice was made. And the blood of that sacrifice was sprinkled on the people. And in that moment the Israelites became the people of God. They belonged to him. God joined himself to these people, the God of promise, and said, you are mine and I am yours. Peter will write in chapter 2, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. The sprinkled blood of Jesus on us means that we are not out there on our own, but that we belong to God together. Christ has died in our place, but not only that, he's brought us into God's family so that the God who makes and keeps promises is now our God and is present with us out in the wild. Have you been cleansed by the blood of Christ? Do you want to belong to God's family? If you turn from yourself and you turn from your ways and you turn to Jesus... And place your faith in him. And let him sit in the rightful place of your life on the throne. You will be saved. The blood of Jesus will cleanse you and you will belong to God's family. And you can find your identity in God. Our identity in God is the foundation of the way that we respond as church in the wild. Peter is trying to root us in our God. So that whatever comes at us out there... We have a home base. We have a foundation in our God. You'll notice that Peter writes a a Trinitarian formula here. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All involved in our salvation. No one sat on the sideline. All of them were involved in bringing us into the family. Josh Butler gives this Illustration And any illustration about the Trinity breaks down because it's a, it's a mystery. But he says you can imagine that you're out in the forest and you're in the middle of the woods. There's trees everywhere and all of a sudden a fire starts and you are engulfed in that fire. There's no hope and there's nowhere to go. And all of a sudden you hear a helicopter. And it's uh, a group of firemen in the helicopter. You look up and you see someone piloting the helicopter. And then a rope comes down right to where you are to save you. Descending on that rope is another fireman who grabs you, rescues you, and is pulled up. Again, every illustration breaks down. The butler says the pilot is like the father. The one descending is like the son who comes and snatches us up and saves us. And, And the rope is like the spirit. The Spirit who mediates the presence of of the Father to Jesus and raises Jesus Christ up and us up with him to the Father. Three persons, one God, working together for our salvation so that we might belong to him. And that's why we baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit because God has worked together for our salvation that we might Belong to Him. And as we begin to understand just how close God has brought us into relationship with Himself, it allows us to face the real world. It allows us to take off those rose colored glasses and look around at the brokenness we see, at the hostility in the culture, at the scariness as we live as followers of Jesus and stand firm. It allows us to engage real people in the real world as it really is. I was reading that there is um, a church planter in South Asia in a country that is incredibly hostile to the gospel. And they wouldn't even tell in the story, they wouldn't even tell which country it is because they're scared for them. But when people come to faith and join this new church plant, the pastor sits them down before they're baptized and asks them these questions. Are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? Are you willing to lose your job? Are you willing to go to the village of those who persecute you, forgive them, and share the love of Christ with them? Are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Are you willing to go to prison and die for Jesus? Now, we will not ask you those in the membership class on Saturday. But why would anyone say yes to that? Why would anyone answer yes to that? Why would anyone lose relationship with those around them? Why would anyone lay down their life like that unless they're gaining a more significant relationship? Unless they're being brought into a new way of life that doesn't compare with the old way of life. Unless they're in awe of being brought into relationship with our God. Sky Jathani tells a story about a time when he was invited to a VIP party. He was invited to a party at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, I believe in New York. And he got there, he didn't even know much about baseball, but he was invited in and he looks around the room and all of a sudden he's sitting next to all the greats of baseball. He looked across the room and there's Cal Ripken. Uh, the great player for the Baltimore Orioles. He he sees Tommy Lasorda, the manager for the Dodgers. He sees Andre Dawson, Wade Boggs, Carlton Fisk, and he was just in awe because not only did he have no reason for being there in and of himself, but he didn't quite grasp who all these people were. It turns out that he had married a woman whose great-great-grandfather was a man named Deacon White, who was a wonderful baseball player in the 1870s. And he was being inducted into the Hall of Fame, even though he was passed away. And Jathani was invited to hop along and be right in the middle of that party, even though he had no right to be there. That's a little bit what it's like for us to be in relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have no right to be there We don't even really totally understand what's going on. And yet, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The Father sent the Son. The Son died for our sins. And we've been raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit and invited into relationship with the Trinity. And now, they share life with us and goodness with us. And we live a life of awe that we know God. You might say, I don't understand I don't understand what it's like to have relationship with the Trinity. I don't even really understand the Trinity. And I would say no one really does. It's a mystery. And yet you don't have to fully grasp everything about them to find your identity in them. I can give you statistics about how far away the sun is and how big it is and how hot it is and everything like that, but you can also just go outside and get a tan. You don't have to know everything about the Trinity to be in relationship with them and to find your identity in them so who are you who are you maybe you're rejected by culture but you're chosen and loved by God maybe you're cast out but you're also set apart for God's purposes maybe at times you feel like there's no hope but there is always purpose because you know God maybe you'll be publicly shamed but you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. You belong to God. You are his, and he is yours. And as you find your identity in God, it allows you to face the world as it really is. Not against it, but in it, but not of it. In the world, but not of the world. It allows you to take off those rose-colored glasses and see the world as it really is without circling the wagons, without hiding as a chameleon, without living life just to regain power and control. No, it allows you to engage the real world, real people living in the real world as a chosen exile, as a chosen exile. Peter ends his greeting by saying this, May grace and peace be multiplied to you though you are rejected, though you might be dishonored, though there is trials, because of what Christ has done, the grace and favor of God, the peace and blessing of God is on you. And that gives you an internal confidence as you encounter external uncertainty. And with these things in mind, we will be equipped and empowered to engage the real world as it really is. Finding our identity in God will allow us to be the church in the wild. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you've done. And we ask that you would sink these truths into our hearts. How do we begin to even grasp that we know the, the triune living God? Oh Lord, transform us so that our deepest confidence comes from you and our deepest love is toward you. And our deepest joy is in knowing you. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you stand with me now and let's sing in response. Praise the Lord that we are his.